The Bayer STEM Global Competitiveness Conference presents Turning Information into Reliable Data Tools and Techniques to Interpret, Organize, and Increase Reliable Business Results A Professional Development Seminar Featuring Executive Leader for Farah Samani Group, Janice Farah Samani Systems Engineer Manager for Lockheed Martin, Christy Bridges an assistant DNI for information and data for the U.S. intelligence community, Nancy Morgan. With evolving technology, many people are overloaded and overwhelmed with information and data. Businesses now have access to large amounts of feedback from internal and external sources. How do we make sense of all the information? Is the data reliable? How can we manage and utilize the data in order to impact business goals, visions, and mission. This seminar will help you turn your information overload into powerful and reliable data that you can use to meet organizational goals. Without further ado, the Bay STEM Global Competitiveness Conference presents Turning Information into Reliable Data, Tools and Techniques to Interpret, Organize, and increase reliable business results. Featuring Janice Farah Samani, Christy Bridges, and Nancy Morgan. So with no further ado, I'd like to again officially welcome you to session 2407, which is turning information into reliable data techniques, tools, interpretation of data. So I'd like to get a pulse of uh, who's in the room and just get a sense of uh, what your backgrounds are. Are Do we have any students? Thank you. HBCUs? Awesome. Excellent, excellent. How many are middle managers? Five to 10 years. Wonderful. Any executives? Were you managing staff, organizations? Any entrepreneurs? Thank you. Government? Enterprise? Super. So now we have a good, thank you for all responding. Appreciate that. So uh, my colleagues will introduce themselves and then I will present a general framework of which we will open our discussion. So with no further ado, my name is Janice Farrar-Samani, first of all, and with no further ado, I'd like to introduce you to one of the, the two panelists that we'll be presenting today, Christy Bridges. Good evening, everyone. I hope everyone is enjoying their BEA experience. Um, my name is Christy Bridges. I'm with Lockheed Martin Space. I've actually been with Lockheed Martin for 19 years. And I really can't believe that I've been there that long. Um, the time is just flying by. Um, Lockheed recruited me from an HBCU, so I'm, I'm a graduate from Jackson State University. Um, after that, I joined Lockheed Martin. Then I got my master's from GW. Um, as you can see on my slide, I have two daughters. Um, I'm the youngest of three. I love to travel and I love mentoring kids. Um, right now I've been mentoring, I probably have 
high school mentees that I visit on pretty much a quarterly basis, um, introducing girls to engineering. So uh, that's one of my passions that I love to do and talk to the young people just about getting them involved in engineering, not just in this area. And also sometimes I'll go down south because I'm actually from Arkansas. So I'll go to Mississippi and just trying to encourage girls about engineering and getting them involved and just younger people. Um, right now, I'm a I'm an associate manager at Lockheed Martin. I have a team of about 15. One of the teams that I have um, that I'm managing is asset management team, which they we have over uh, 300 plus assets that we manage, and that's not including all the different software that we track to um, that I manage on a daily basis, and that's Conus and Onconus. So around the world, we're just trying to keep track of all of the assets and things that we have out there. Um, so if that's all, I'm, I'm Christy Bridges. So if you want to talk to me afterwards, please come up and talk to me. And right now, we will have Nancy. Nancy will be is another panelist that is sitting along with me. She's from DNI. So Nancy will come up and introduce, introduce herself. Thank you, Christy. Mm -hmm. How is everybody on this frosty Valentine's Day? So as a native Chicagoan, the weather kind of works for me. Seems just like home a little bit, a little less snow. All right, so good afternoon. I am the Assistant Director of National Intelligence for Information and Data. That's a mouthful. And I also wear two other hats. I am the Intelligence Community Chief Data Officer, and I'm also the Intelligence Community Sharing and Safeguarding Executive. I'm currently on what's called a joint duty assignment. So I have come from my home agency, CIA, to ODNI, and CIA in this case, not the Culinary Institute of America, the Central Intelligence Agency, that one in the IC, the other CIA as I like to call it. So I wear a couple of different hats and I deal with information and data in all of its phases, and we'll talk more about that today. In my 25 plus years at CIA, I've dealt with information technology systems in almost every domain area and every directorate there, from business systems to systems that deal with raw intelligence, intelligence analysis, dissemination, targeting, repositories, access control, lots of things in between. But I didn't start out that way. My bachelor's is actually in international relations and French. I withdrew from my computer science course when I got mono in college, first one I dropped. Um, then, while I was working, someone said, you're really good at talking to developers. Why is that? Probably because I married one. <laughs> so I really didn't know how to build systems, didn't know how to do that, but I guess I learned a few things talking to him. And I was really good at working in between on behalf of the end user or the mission needs, talking to the IT teams about what do you need. So the government convinced me that maybe I should grow my skills and knowledge and go get a master's in information systems. So I will tell you, it can be done. Uh, that first semester, quantitative analysis almost killed me. Monday nights, 8, 10 to 10, 40, actually up the road at American University, uh, kind of killed me because I didn't have three semesters of statistics. So I had to take a little bit of a crash course with some tutoring to get through that. Uh, COBOL programming, yes, I'm a little bit older. So COBOL programming, not the punch card era, but a little bit after trying to do that. Uh, I am a graduate of multiple executive leadership programs. One thing I will tell you is the government, unlike some of the companies, probably spends more time investing in you growing your skills over your career if you seek out those opportunities. So I have had some fabulous opportunities to do a senior school like at Northwestern's Kellogg School of Management, leading high impact teams, 
I did something through the Corporate Executive Board of IT Leadership Boot Camp for Chief Information Officers, a couple of other things like that. Um, in government speak, I am a certified program manager and certified contracting officer's technical representative. We call it COTR for short. So people who manage the acquisition lifecycle and IT projects and involved in all the contracts for that have done that for much of my career. And I'm also a certified team facilitator. Did that earlier in career, something I really like doing. Um, I used to be fluent in French. I've gotten a little rusty. I can read more than I can speak, but I can, I can follow along in a movie. Uh, the fun side of me, I am a native Chicagoan, already shared that with you. I learned to sail on a sunfish on Lake Michigan, so you learn to get upright really fast because it's cold, even in the summer, even in the warmest days, not, not too warm there. I'm a bit of a night owl, and I also love to travel, so I have a picture that I took when we were in Switzerland two years ago on vacation with my family. And for me, it's all about the chocolate. So when you have a chance at a break or after, come up and ask me, there are rules for chocolate, and I'll share my rules for chocolate with you. On what are my rules there? So just a little bit more about the IC as part of the introduction. Um, how many of you know how many agencies there are in the intelligence community? Any guesses? Okay, the two folks from the ODNI can't answer hiding in the back of the room, but there was a hand up here. Um, over 500, not quite that many, the big agencies. Yep. Awesome, you get the gold star today. You are right, there are 17 agencies in the IC, and we all work together, in my case, to ensure that information and data gets to the right people at the right time and in the right form. We are committed to getting data management right, so intelligence officers across the intelligence community, and a good portion of those also part of what's called the Defense Intelligence Enterprise, so working in partnership with DOD, deliver distinctive and timely insights to our customers, understand the intentions of our adversaries, and if you read headline news lately or click on headlines, you'll see why that's important, and provide strategic warning on threats and opportunities. And you'll hear a little bit more about the explosive growth in the volume of data, and we'll talk more about that with Dr. Samani today and with Christy. Like many people in today's world, we in the IC need unparalleled access to information, and so one of our constant challenges is finding innovative ways to collect, organize, and process this information at the speed of mission. We're not having trouble collecting it. We don't have enough humans to keep up with it. And that's why for all of you, there are some exciting job opportunities, both in the government and in our contractor partners to help us deal with, this, deal with these issues. Our world is constantly undergoing unprecedented technological change, and we are collecting and producing more data than ever. More data has been produced in the past two years than in all previous years combined. Think about that. More data than all previous years in two years, and they expect that trend to accelerate. In 2019, 53.6% of the world population was using the internet. Over 4.1 billion people somehow are accessing the internet. That's a pretty big statistic, folks. I don't think we were quite there even just two or three years ago. So we are becoming more interconnected than ever. And all those people generate 2.5 quintillion bytes of data a day. And I had to look up, so what's a good reference for quintillion bytes of data a day? That means 5 million, so pennies laid flat over the earth would cover the earth five times. That gave me a visual each day. That's a lot of pennies, folks. That's a lot of data being produced. We need all of your help to figure out innovative ways to help us manage and swim in that much data. And you'll hear a little bit more about that today. So with that, I think I will get us back to our program. And I'd love to talk to you at a break or at the end. Thank you.
So amazing statistics, and we have an incredible panel here. So please do think about questions that you'd like to address to them, okay? All right? This is interactive, mm -hmm. so I need callback. I know everybody in the room is used to that. So uh, please do feel free and feel comfortable to ask. You don't have to wait till the end either. So um, we want to present all levels and make sure that everyone in the room gets their, their questions answered or your curiosity, just to tickle your curiosity, to galvanize and to build your particular interest in our field. So I'll introduce myself. I am Dr. Janice Farrar-Samani. I have a, I'm working on my second doctorate currently in information technology management. So my more technical side is being fulfilled. I have a PhD in organizational development with an emphasis on human behavior. I have an MBA as well as an MCP in civil engineering and economics, and of course, undergraduate. Um, I'm a certified scrum master, so I like to organize and plan, get people activated, if you will, in their planning process of building innovation. Uh, I do love to travel. So Nancy alluded to that, and we have that kindred spirit. I got my Google results back uh, at the end of the year, and they said I traveled one and a half times around the world last year. Uh, so, and, and I traveled to 10 different regions. So it was quite, quite exciting. And I feel very fortunate to be able to, in that capacity, actually speak to technology and speak to STEM audiences in ICT, mainly around uh, data, as well as artificial intelligence and emerging technologies. I uh, live in Silicon Valley, and uh, I am a former professor. Carnegie Mellon was my institution. Information Network Institute was my department. I was senior faculty and ran the practicum for the graduate students, as well as Santa Clara University and the School of Engineering. So now I'm having full circle, and I'm actually speaking more than teaching. I also have a nonprofit, and it is called Fifth Wave, so please do look it up. It is a STEAM activity uh, or organization initiative, if you will, and we are going global. We're kicking off in, in uh, Morocco in April, as well as San Martin and Curacao. So I'm really reaching those far places to galvanize, to stimulate, to provide access to the underrepresented and to bring technology to them. We also have an online platform for entrepreneurship that is free, by the way. So please do uh, ask me about it if you're interested. I'm trying to get more engineers integrated into business and more business people integrated into engineering. So with no further ado, I will begin to share our topic of the day. We are looking at turning information chaos into reliable data. And what does that mean exactly? We're thinking about the actual mindset, the perception, as well as a sense of purpose. And I broke that down into three different areas that we were given the title, which is technique, tools, and interpretation. And with that, we're thinking about I wanted to, my teaching hat came on, and I said, well, you know, it's a, it's a mouthful, and what does it mean exactly? So let's break down the title. So when we think of chaos, what comes to mind? Dysfunction? Okay. Unorganized? Lack of communication? Very good. 
lack of direction, thank you. Information, information and chaos or lack of information. No structure, very good. Any other comments? So exactly it's what you said, and I can add a few things, of course, being the professor here. So chaos, uh, you're thinking about the mindset, it's being stealth. There's no growth, there's a lack of purpose, there's a lack of clarity. Uh, you think about the perception as not being clear, being foggy. So if chaos can be different in different sectors, just as the uh, gentleman that said he's in math, and so we just think of chaos in different ways. So let's try to break that down and make it palatable and practical for everyone in the room. So if you are on the analyst level and is chaos, you may think of linear regression, the outliers and testing the actual process. If you're a data analyst, you may begin to think about the challenges of the unstructured data, just as what was mentioned. And thank you for that thinking about the general thought of the unstructured data as what was mentioned and the actual model and format. In looking at it from a management or an executive perspective, you may think about the acronym or the application and the visibility of the actual data and its capacity and resources that you're bringing to the evaluation and the insights that you get from that to actually make your decisions. So we're turning chaos, are we just turning it into reliable data or are we turning it into information that is reliable which is quite interesting concept so you can play on the words and you can begin to see what exactly those outtakes are and exactly what those insights are so finding the opportunity and therefore there is opportunity in chaos finding opportunity in and among the information of chaos it is a perplexing path and ultimately a rewarding one. By combining the content and the process in a new and unexpected way, organizations can dramatically mitigate the actual risk and reduce their actual process costs, as well as better engage with customers, employees and partners in transforming information into insight. Let's think about data. Data is merely facts and figures, but reliable data is when it's consistent with your research. Reliable is highly important in research, of course. Reliability is usable in all sectors, and it is a true test of your hypothesis and your aims to succeed for your outcomes. So if we're looking at the actual tools, we begin to look at those assets that can be brought forth and the actual, and Christy is gonna talk more about storage and more about data management. And also thinking about the security of building your platforms. So indeed, is data real? Why do you say it's real? It's all around us. Yes, exactly. So thinking about these actual perceptions and tools that you gave insight to is very uh, critical to the success of the outcome and how it's applied. So if we're looking at data interpretation, we do want to really consider the system in which we are evaluating this information into reliable data. So thinking in advance of 
how techniques really take form. We are collecting information. Since we have students and middle managers here, I'm gonna break it down just a bit so you have a general insight. How many of you are working currently with data? Oh, excellent, excellent. Well, I don't wanna to go too low then because we have experts in the room. But just to give insight about collecting your data, and there's various ways, of course, of collecting data, CSV files, existing files, or empirical data. And um, also cleaning the data, the classification, building out the actual dashboards and the workstations. And those dashboards and workstations are actually places of uh, depositories and um, information that is being stored and where security can overlay and you can get sign-in authentication and logins, if you will, to secure the data. So looking at, we are talking about our global catalyst for change at this conference, that is the theme. So keeping in context with this global internet population, it is continuing to increase, obviously. People are getting online. Nancy had mentioned a few numbers. She's gonna dive in a bit deeper with some uh, numbers, but I just wanted to give you a global perspective of where we are in 2018, which is already uh, outdated, if you will. But we're looking at 4.3 million that are, it is at a rate of growth, if you will, for internet connection. And it, to allude to what you had mentioned earlier, that data is being collected everywhere. And anytime you go into a store, they know you're there. When you're in your car, they, you, your car knows you're there. Uh, when you're at home, your car knows it's it's such a kick. I pick up my phone and it says, oh, my car is parked. Thank you very much. <laughs> uh, so it's that connectivity that we have in the cloud and the clustering of information, the IoT. So here we have some general uh, figures, facts and figures, if you will, for data around the world. We're looking at our total population of over 7.6 billion people. And 56 of those are actually online. And mo more people are online than offline. More people have mobility, if you will, than not. Um, the, they're staggering figures. Uh, we're looking at the internet of four point, basically 4.4 billion are connected. Everyone is connected. Um, when I travel to Africa, it's quite interesting. Everyone is on the phone connecting. In Cuba, they're on the phone connecting. Uh, you see people clustering around kiosks and various corners, and you say, oh, that's a hot spot because everyone is connecting. And there's intermittent uh, energy, but even with the intermittent uh, energy, you find these clusters and you find locations in which people are actually connecting. So everyone wants to be online. Uh, in addition to the social media, it is continuing to, to grow, obviously, at 45%. And these are global figures, of course. And then looking at how we actually comment and connect with each other on social media continues to increase at 42%. So uh, actually, Nancy is going to speak to that slide. So looking at our data, should we doubt it? A lot of it is coming through the internet. What's so fascinating, I was watching a, a talk show one night, which I rarely get to do, 
But the talk show host said, oh, everything, I believe everything on the internet. And everyone in the audience laughed. So should we doubt our data? Why? So bad input leads to bad data. So distribution issues in the analysis. Absolutely. There's bias. That is one of the key issues and concerns around data. And uh, many of us know that in certain industries, uh, data is being used to manipulate anywhere from housing to public services to education, et cetera, just based upon bias. Um, and I want to bring to your attention that the U.S. Uh, census is coming up in April. And that is a time in which they account for every human being. They're focusing on the homeless, so it's already being skewed, <laughs> but they're focusing on the homeless and also the services that can be provided in education. But there is a key concern about homeless currently. So uh, please do fill out your census data because it's important. There's redistricting that happens. Uh, there's funding that, that is changed because of the census information. Uh, so yes, it's very critical. Any other comments? So here we are, lots and lots of information. I gave you some global numbers and Nancy gave you some uh, US numbers. And we're thinking about how much information is out there. And Christy will talk more about asset and the data management. So if we are trying to gather and harness and curate all of this information, there needs to be some taming of this information. They're terabytes, they're barabytes, they're cotillabytes, and <laughs> all kinds of uh, incredible numbers, if you will, of directories and information that is being curated. So basically, there are five steps, if you will, of taking better management of your data. And I'll just mention them briefly. One is to focus on the information and not the device or the actual data center, again, because of the manipulation and what have you, but to gain a complete understanding of your data. So ask questions, dive in deep, do the research that is needed, be effective and efficient in getting your data, set consistent policies, there's regulatory, there's ethical policies in place and stay agile. So allow yourself to pivot when you need to pivot and allow yourself to sometimes change direction when you need to in order to have that reliable data that is needed. You're listening to Turning Information into Reliable Data, tools and techniques to interpret, organize, and increase reliable business results. A professional development seminar featuring Janice Farasamani. Christy Bridges, and Nancy Morgan. Brought to you by the Global Catalyst for Change, the Bay of STEM Global Competitiveness Conference, where we make the untapped potential possible. Be sure to check out our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Let's just take a brief look at the tools. So thinking about the tools, uh, of course, security plays a key factor. We're not gonna dive in too deep. That could be a whole session in itself. 
But looking at the security, the asset management, as well as the data storage that I had mentioned, Chrissy's going to speak more about that or ask her questions. And of course, the cloud, where I alluded to as far as the clustering and the IoT that happens in the cloud. There are some key tools that are used to provide clarification of this data, which is reliable and dependable on and depends upon the industry that the data is applied. These assets and data management cloud, for instance, are all repetitive. You use uh, ML, which is machine learning. You use deep learning algorithms, and you can build out the kind of information that you are interested in just using those kinds of data scientific or, uh, excuse me, um, type of uh, tools that are being used. So uh, on my trip over here, I met a colleague that actually teaches at uh, Stanford, and it was really interesting because her focus is on researching batteries and looking at the flow of a lithium battery. And so we began to talk about what exactly her tools were that she uses to curate the data so she can evaluate and to uh, give better performance of these tools. So of uh, her actual experiments, excuse me. So we began to talk about the tools and her tools are completely different from a statistician using R or Python or um, MATLAB or Mango or uh, any of the others that are, are being used currently. SAS, of course, um, SAS. And so we were sharing about just some of the recourse of the information that is being derived and how it could be utilized. And believe it or not, Excel is still being used. How many of you use Excel? Really? Really? Hats off to you. I think that's amazing. So the statistical um, classifications, of course, for big data are I, R, excuse me, Python, SQL, Met, uh, MetLabs, Pig Analytics. I've used um, Mango, of course, and then BI, we use more advanced uh, privatized native systems. So thinking about your actual data visualization, I came up with this <laughs> to think about, should we really invest? Is data, how much should we invest as an organization? Should you invest a bit and just test it and see how it goes? Or should you go full throttle so you can actually get the robust response that you need? So is the investment beneficial? to your organization? Absolutely, because we know the numbers are there, right? That's telling us that it's important. So looking at our data interpretation, we can think about our business justification, whether or not we will get a return on investment, whether or not you truly will get the business insights that you need from your actual interpretation. That sense of purpose that I mentioned in the outline and to have the chores of reliable data give you that kind of response that you need to provide the insights and the predictions for your industry and of course the pivoting. So turning information into reliable data is important in business to understand the problems that are facing organizations and to explore the meaningful ways in which data itself 
is not merely facts and figures, but actually the guideline and the plan for your organization. So I just wanted to share with you one of my experiences. Um, I identified them as the five pitfalls of interpretation of interpreting the data. This is a um, case study that I actually did for an organization and I presented it in Amsterdam. Hence, it was an English company, so the two M's included medicine. And it was an opportunity to actually showcase this research, which was looking at women mid-managers, which my, 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 was my focus. But it was a global project that we had over 20,000 attendees at a conference. So it was an end-to-end opportunity whereby my organization actually created the survey because we're talking about how we're building and getting good information. So we created the survey. We actually deployed it electronically. We had a 98% return factor. And I was actually able to generate some really good data in expressing, expressing where exactly the attendees came from, what their backgrounds were uh, academically as well as professionally, uh, what their age level was, what their ethnicity was, et cetera. So it was an excellent, excellent opportunity to really look at large quantities and volumes of data and its content to transform this actual content into insightful and meaningful information that was eventually used for this organization's board as well as for the staff to create various departments and programs to assist their development and scaling. So I have a quick holistic graph here that's looking at the improvement of the operational excellence as part of the process, and then taking that data that you have to make a better decision about the data. Um, of course, that's through the clarification and the classification of the data and making sure that it is valid. Looking at your various technologies, which are your tools to optimize the data, and then taking it to the level of application to the actual organization. So making better decisions about good data. But data wouldn't be just data, so it needs to tell a story, right? So we have some visualization tools. Has anyone used TensorFlow? That's mainly used in big data. Very good. I use that quite a bit. You use uh, Tableau? Yes, that's the old good standby. Tableau gives great, great pictures. And it really helps us tell a story. So we are able to uh, depict these, these things as far as making sure there are pitfalls within. I wanted to talk about pitfalls because I want you to think about the positive way in which you present your data to tell the true story to get those insights. So think about your color abuse. <laughs> Quite often these, and this is something that is used within the data world. So uh, in regard to telling the story. So color abuse, choose colors that are actually visually easy to see. I have a friend actually that has a PhD in color math visualization because it is so critical in your slide presentations and in your storytelling. Uh, looking at your poor design, don't clutter. Make sure that you have very little to 
know information and, and talk to it, be able to speak to it in your subheadings or in your actual write-up. So I recommend 150 words. They're actual color palettes, and we can talk more about that, but there are there's research that is done about how the eye actually can uh, monitor depth and, as well as perception. So there's theories behind it. If you work for a large agency or a large company, they may have even have what are called style guides to help you out, or depending on projects, you can find examples online of what are good examples. You've seen plenty of bad examples. Mm -hmm. um, you've all seen that when you find things that are hard to ruin, if you're in a big room like this, or even further in a big auditorium versus on your cell phone screen real estate, you might need to make sure you can display and colors work well. As I get older, color contrast is a big deal for me. Yes. And my vision's not quite as strong as it used to be. And I would add one more dimension is if you work in an international field or work across among different countries and being culturally sensitive and also aware in different countries and different cultures, some colors may have meanings at certain times of year or related to certain events. You need to do a little bit of homework on that or you can really, in a very unintentional way, offend someone and then you lose your message. And they're not focused on your message, they're focused on, they're upset about what's on the slide. Very good point. Excellent. Along with the language as well. Yeah. We recently expanded our company to Morocco, as I shared with you, and uh, the entrepreneur component is called Founders in Tech. But in Arabic and in French, it's not a very warming or inviting uh, phrase. So I've changed it to entrepreneurs new wave, which is nouveau, it's fresh, but again, looking at color as well as language. Very critical. Thank you all. Having those direct contrasts do help and not putting in a sharp colors such as reds. Yeah. Reds are extremely offensive. Uh, greens are, since we're diving into this, I didn't realize this was going to be such a, a great point. Um, greens are more of the go type of color. Um, it depends upon the hue of green, if it has too much yellow. Exactly. So you really have to determine what is the most or the best for that particular presentation. And it may vary just based upon the topic or the subject matter. Can I add where and how you're going to present that information? Is it going to be coming up on someone's cell phone? Is it in a big screen? Is it more mobile? Is it more static? You might need to think about that. In a room like this, we've been playing with the lighting since we got here. It was yes. pretty dark when we walked into the room. So thinking about if you know where your information is going to be displayed or used, think about that. That might help you in the context. I think pie charts are come from the Harvard graphics days. Uh, everything was pie charts. And, um, and there's been uh, overuse of pie charts. And there's histographs, there's lots and lots of, there is this amazing, I don't know if you've used it in Tableau, that actually um, it's spotting. There's spots. Oh, it's amazing. As well as showing if you're doing anything as far as location driven, you could use the mapping and that sort of thing. Extremely, extremely helpful because they pinpoint exactly what you need. And uh, histographs on graphic charts with lines and then with the dots and the directive of whatever your data is talking about, I think are very helpful. So I would recommend trying it out and looking to see if that story can be told in a different way with a different visual. 
And then, of course, looking at our bad data. We've been talking about that this afternoon quite a bit. Putting, having poor input, you're going to get poor output. Putting in bad data, you're going to get bad data out. So making sure that that data is correct, your algorithms, if you're programming or if someone on your team is programming, that the algorithms actually are speaking to what you want them to say. Um, especially in Python, it's very easy because you're using pseudocode. You're just talking and you're telling it what to do, and then you can make sure that the directive is correct with that. You just have to really go back to it. Yes, go back to it and work it out give an explanation of, I like to give the explanation of why it's skewed in the first place. Because part of that, that's the learning. And with that said, that could either be a pivot to change to a new product or a new investment or a different cost factor, whatever. But definitely go back to it, improve it, and have an explanation of why potentially it's skewed or why it could skew given a particular uh, piece of data or programming. Yes. I don't know if I would just send it to him. I personally, I feel, this is just my opinion, that once it's validated and you have responses to that source, here I am in my research mode, right? So you have responses to sources to that response, then you would update your slide, right? Or that information, but also inform the other people because you're disseminating this to a larger setting, a larger environment. So you do want to uh, validate your actual, it could be a one-off, like this gentleman was saying. Um, so you want to validate what you're doing. And it could be this, that little minus, that little tweet, you know, that needs to be improved. So well done. So just inform everyone. Why not? And then, of course, looking at clutter. That, I think, is our nemesis. I was, uh, <laughs> how many times have we gone to a presentation, or you can remember back in school, where the professor has put 10 points with 250 to 300, maybe 400 words on a slide, and everyone's doing this? Yes. yes. So think about your visual. If you can just put one visual and then just speak to that, and let the imagination of what you're saying, as well as what they are connecting that image with, because that's part of the learning. When someone sees something, there is an instant narrow that is triggered off that allows them to receive it and connect it with something they know. So if you have less information, less clutter, they're learning more, believe it or not. So here, I like to, as I shared with you, I like to integrate business and engineering. And when we think about our data, we have two different entry points as far as engineering teams and then business teams. Business teams are thinking about that navigation, right? They're looking at, well, how are we going to get this information? How are we going to actually, or is it going to be empirical? Is it going to be CSV files, secondhand files? Or are we going to be able to integrate uh, prior art with existing? So we're looking at the actual collection of information, but the engineering team is saying, I'm not worried about that. I need to actually build out the development of that data. I need to be able to write the code, et cetera. 
So then we're looking at storage. They're kind of coming together uh, as far as engineering as well as business. And then we're taking off with the actual analysis. Both engineering as well as business have want to get that insight. That's where they're interconnected. And that's where they're really beginning to say, you know, I need to work cross-functionally. I need to work with the other teams to actually analyze this, know exactly what their needs are so we can better create uh, the best story and be able to have the best outcomes. And then at the end of the day, it's all about the decision-making. So they truly come together with the engineering teams as well as those senior leaders within those departments of engineering and business to give the insights that are needed. So in closing, we're thinking about some key takeaways here. Always start with the end in mind. Always know what you want to achieve at the end of the day and how you want to present it. You may not have a solid foundation of how you want to present it, but you have a general idea of making sure that it's either gonna go for an annual report or it's gonna go to uh, the board of directors or, or um, your stakeholders, say for instance. So start with the end in mind. Um, innovate your actual management system using the technologies that are available or create some in native if you have that opportunity. Identify these techniques to organize and to interpret your data. And that can be anywhere from coming up with innovative management tools to actually thinking about how your organization structure is and how it needs to be adjusted to actually gain those insights of interpretation of the data to make it more reliable. To actually explore the productivity tools because there's always something new coming down the pike as well as looking at protecting the data and your actual BI for your business intelligence. So in closing, finding opportunities in and among the information chaos is a challenging path, but definitely doable and rewarding. By combining the content and the techniques, processes, and new unexpected ways, tools that organize and can dramatically mitigate these risks actually can lower the costs, as I shared earlier, and actually build in relationships in the organization to move them forward and to transform the information as well as the organization. So with no further ado, I'd like to thank you and we're gonna open up for Q&A. So a couple things, there is bias in our data everywhere right now. So we all, that just like she spoke about, we have to be mindful about understanding our data, understanding the sources of data, and to be honest, having more diverse teams help us work on the projects. Having more diverse teams build the analytics. I think there was a recent example, was it Apple credit card or Apple Pay when it came out that was showing bias in terms of approving cards and the, and the interest rates people were getting charged for cards because perhaps it was a too homogeneous team that built the analytics and built the underlying models on it. We also have to be mindful of that. But I will tell you, working in the intelligence community, this is something we talk about is adversarial AI and what are our adversaries doing and what are other countries doing that have different value systems than we do in the US that might not have the same thoughts about civil liberties and the validity and accuracy of what they're doing. They have intentions to cause harm and they may be injecting things into our data. 
So how do we know the ground truth on the source? Do we do version control? What's the explainability and the accountability, not just of your data, but also of your analytics? So this is a challenging area, but this is where, partly why I like events like BEA, is getting more diverse and inclusive teams will help us on that path. So I would say once you present the metrics and you pretty much show this is how long it's taking. This is so when we're dealing with our asset management, um, I look at the team, I look at their workload, I look once they present to me and say, okay, Christy, this is everything that we're managing. And with that, I can kind of look at do I need to invest in another tool? whether it's machine learning or do I invest in the resources? A lot of time right now we're trying to automate a lot of stuff. So if I throw more people at it, is it really going to help me? You know, um, I may need to invest that money. But once they present that business case to me, then I can make that decision. So present your case. Gather all your data. How long is taking you to spend on um, the amount of time of collecting the data and combing through it and build a case for it? And I think one thing we've talked about is thinking about the kinds of roles you have on a team that you might need, not just everyone's focused on data scientists right now, by the way, if there's 500 more of you cleared, we, the community wants to talk to you right away, but it's not just data scientists, it's data curators, it's data engineers, it's policy people, I'll tell you, it's attorneys, it's civil liberties and privacy officers who can speak tech, we need all these kinds of skills, but there's still not enough of them. But it might also be talking about the other kinds of roles on your team. Do you need people to help with some of the upfront data wrangling, as we call it, in sort of simple terms of data curation to help so that then your algorithm folks can spend their more time doing the algorithm work, not prepping the data to use the algorithms on. And so that's something we've had some success with too. And just to add, I would, powerful here. Um, just to add, I would add um, the cost factor. So you're building out your case. So it's not just a matter of presenting it and saying, well, I think, I contend, but it's actually showing your costs. This is how much time is taking me. This is what is costing my organization. If we had ML implemented, machine learning implemented by simply investing in code or someone who could code, um, then it would cost this much because my, my time would be cut down. So turn it into money, and money always talks. That's the business side. <laughs> Any other comments? So I think it might depend where, where you're aiming, you know, which domain or industry or government sector you're working in, but we need all of the above. My most successful project teams in my careers were cross-disciplinary teams. And that's great if I have a really strong business analyst or a really strong developer, a really strong data scientist, my most powerful teams have all of the above. And also policy people, people who speak, we were talking about this before we got in here, people who speak human, not just speak data. <laughs> I may have someone who's really great at writing those algorithms or solving or finding that scientific breakthrough or formula, but they can't translate the mission value, the so what. So that chart she had about, I think you called it business and or the, the technologists and the business people, we call it mission and IT where I come from. You need all of those kinds of skills. I love full stack developers, but if I want someone to do a really beautiful user interface and really get the colors right, get the accessibility, get rid of the clutter, I might want one or two members of that team to really be more front end developers. 
And if I've got people working big time enterprise extraction, transform, and load and ingestion, I really want people who specialize in that. So I don't know that there's a single right answer. A little bit depends of what gets you excited every day. Where are you going to have the passion? But I'll also tell you, you've got to be willing to continue to update your skills, relearn. You talked about pursuing your advanced degree. My husband is pursuing a master's degree at night on top of working. His, his organization wanted to do that. He works for MITRE, one of the FFRDCs, federally funded R&D centers. You have to refresh your skills and knowledge. He's been a principal system engineer developer type for 30 plus years. He's learning new things in his master's program right now saying, gee, that might have been handy if I knew that. <laughs> They're talking about things like, this might scare you 50-year careers, but the reality is we're living longer. We are healthier, we've done some great things. People wanna be doing more in their next phases of life. You might need to completely change your skills. You know, I went in a very different direction. International Russian French, Information Systems and Project Management. I would never have told you I was gonna do that. In my undergrad days, I would have said, you were nuts that I was gonna get an IT background and end up in an IT or a STEM field. So don't limit yourself to that. I also ended up being asked to take on jobs or programs I didn't expect to and said, I'm not this kind of expert, but I was good at fighting for the money, selling it, fighting for the teams, resources for the teams. So don't sell yourself short. And one thing that we're seeing is people don't always apply for positions because they don't feel they meet all of the minimum qualifications. Don't let that, now if you meet none of them, that might be worth a conversation. <laughs> but if you meet 60, 70, 80% of them, have a, find out if you can reach out to someone in the organization. Throw your hat in the ring. Guess what? You might have some really other interesting skills we want. So do not sell yourself short. If you want something, show the passion and go after it. I find that the interdisciplinary route is the way to go. If you can, it's a broader, it's the broad spectrum, if you will, because you can bring, as Nancy was saying, you can bring so much more to the table than diving in deeper. And you can always learn the deeper dive or be on a team that someone else has the deeper dive. And you can be that, that, uh, that unicorn, if you will, of that, that uh, group to actually bring your resources and make it happen. But just think about how much the tools and technologies you've been using in the last 10 years changed. Just think about what we have, you know, one of you hold up your phones, you know, what's the power on your phone, what kinds of things you can do on your phone that we couldn't do just a few years ago. We need to keep refreshing our skills and knowledge. I don't know if new phones will be the big thing 10 years from now, if that's how we'll primarily communicate, there might be something newer. So be willing to refresh your skills and knowledge, learn new things. That's going to make you valuable to an organization. I'm still in school. Yep. I'm getting my second doctorate. Yep. And I did my postdoc at Stanford, and I'm still taking courses. Sometimes I teach, but um, I've pulled away from teaching, but I'm still taking courses. So, and it's a passion. And uh, once you, you, you're curious, you can remain curious. It keeps my brain fresh. And I can speak to anyone about anything. And that's what makes it exciting. That's exactly what I was about to say. Um, when I started off, like I said, I have a computer science degree. I started off as an admin. I've done an admin type of work. I went from a database person to business development to strategy. And now I can bring all those things together. I can speak different languages, even mm -hmm. though I'm not exactly. software developing. I'm not doing it right now. I'm not just, I'm able to speak about various things. So I would, all, I would say continue to just, you know, you find something that you're good at, good at, move around for two, three years, you know that. It's time to do something different. 
And there's Always lots of MOOCs. Yourself. Yeah. Sorry. Continue to challenge yourself. And there's MOOCs. There's more and more degrees that are ABET accredited online. So you can always take, and they're affordable. So you can take intramental classes and stretch it out four to six years. And then on that sixth year, you're already looking at a new career. So there's lots and lots of opportunities. I challenge you to do so. Call to action. Think about that next level. And something some of the government agencies are doing is more shorter term stints. They call them different things, interims, experiences. Uh, we call it cross the line right now in, our, in, in the ODNI. Try something out for 90 days. Try something out for three to four months. We're purposely trying structuring activities so people can go work in another part of the organization, learn to speak their dialect, learn what drives their world, learn their culture things, build new relationships, and then come back and bring that to where you're working. And sometimes they find it leads to a whole new career trajectory doing that. So sometimes that special project they ask you to surge on or you work on, capitalize on that, build on those relationships. So I think what makes for an interesting and rich and rewarding career is a variety of experiences, academic, work experiences, networking, the outside activities that some of my colleagues spoke about, some of the outside organizations they're involved in. You can build and test out your skills in those outside organizations. That's where you can take a chance on some things. You have a lot of worthy organizations out there that need help on a lot of ways. Yes. They would be delighted to have you come in and help them try some of those skills out. Especially in STEM, yep. K through 12, kids would love to see more of people, people of color out there connecting. They need to see those role models. Okay. Well, thank you, it was a wonderful session. Thank you so very much. Thank you for listening to Turning Information into Reliable Data, Tools and Techniques to Interpret, Organize, and Increase Reliable Business Results, a Professional Development Seminar. Featuring Executive Leader for Far Samani Group, Janice Far Samani. Systems Engineer Manager for Lockheed Martin, Christy Bridges, and Assistant DNI for Information and Data for the U.S. Intelligence Community, Nancy Morgan. If you have enjoyed this presentation, be sure to attend the Bay of STEM Global Competitiveness Conference. For more information on how you, your company, or organization can take part, visit www.bea.com. Dot org. For college students, contact us at 410-244-7101.